Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Head Mirrors ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Drew Smith, and today we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Michael Platt, a fellowship-trained rhinologist and skull-based surgeon to discuss chronic running sinusitis with nasal polyps. Dr. Platt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Before we begin, I want to point out to our listeners that we published a previous podcast episode detailing chronic running sinusitis without nasal polyps back in May 2020, as well as an episode exploring aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease, AERD, in March 2020. While this episode will focus on CRS with nasal polyps, we will attempt to highlight some of the key similarities and differences as well. However, I definitely encourage listeners to refer back to the previous episode for further comparison and contrast in order to maximize your understanding of CRS. Dr. Platt, how often do you encounter a patient presenting with nasal polyps in your office? Epidemiologically speaking, is this a common problem in the United States? Well, chronic rhinosinusitis is an extremely common problem. And as a rhinologist, the majority of my patients suffer from this disorder. And those that have polyps, the, the subtype, the endotype with polyps, is I would say up to about a third of my patients. And generally speaking, we talk about breaking down CRS into with polyps and without polyps, but that thinking is evolving as we understand the pathophysiology and the diagnosis of having with polyps depends upon being able to see a polyp. But now we understand that the pathophysiology, the inflammation may be there for some time before the polyp is visibly seen. And so overall, CRS is an extremely common disorder affecting typically quoted as one in 50 to one in 10. There's significant overlap with other disorders such as allergic rhinitis. And so it's difficult to know exactly what it is, but it's a common disorder. Many people suffer from it. And as a general otolaryngologist, uh, it's an extremely common chief complaint within the community practice. And in my practice, the tertiary care rhinology practice is extremely common. And every day in clinic, I'm seeing patients with polyps at different stages of treatment new patients coming in without even knowing they have the diagnosis to patients who've had it for many years and are in continued medical management. So it seems like we're seeing this pretty frequently. Before we jump into the clinical picture and workup, can you discuss the pathophysiology behind CRS with polyps? CRS with polyps is thought to be due to type 2 inflammation. That is an eosinophilic-driven inflammation where we see different types of inflammatory mediators. The ones that we talk about most commonly today are IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. There are other mediators within the pathway and other cells that are involved, but those are sort of the ones that are hot topics because there are biologic therapies that target those cytokines. And so this is an immune system problem, an eosinophilic-driven immune system problem where there's inflammation within the sinuses it involves generally all of the sinuses, the mucosa, and polyp formation is extra growth of tissue, often associated with platelet dysfunction within the polyp tissue. And these are growths that happen within the sinuses, typically growing out from the sinus pathways in the middle meatus and the sphenoethmoid recess, eventually reaching the size that they can be seen endoscopically and can grow to completely obstructing the nasal cavity, and even the nasal vestibules in advanced cases. And so 
it's generally an immune system problem. Your immune system is reacting in this certain pathway, type 2 inflammation, and we still fully don't understand why, what triggers it, what is the underlying reason why people develop polyps is still unknown, but tremendous work has demonstrated sort of the signaling pathways and mediators involved, which is wonderful because now in the area of personalized medicine, we could develop a biologic that targets anything. And if we know the mediators, we've been successful at, at blocking those things and providing new therapies, especially for patients who've had the worst forms of disease where we've had limited options and patients had previously continued to suffer. Now there's also new options for biologic therapies that are making a big difference. That's great progress. And we'll certainly get into the biologics more as, as we talk. Um, how would you say the pathophysiology of CRS with polyps differs from that without polyps? Well, there's a long history of subtyping, endotyping of chronic rhinosinusitis. And, you know, originally we could say way back it was one disease where people had a clinical syndrome manifest by four cardinal symptoms. And then the presence of polyps broke people down into different types of inflammation. And so that is those two big groups that you mentioned with polyps and without polyps. CRS without polyps is typically thought of as a type 1 inflammation. It's more neutrophilic. It is more seen with purulent drainage rather than polyps. You see different types of bacterial derangements, overgrowth of bacteria or bacterial infections. It's something that's seen with uh, tobacco smokers, environmental irritants and triggers where there's loss of ciliary function. And so Generally, even though there are many of the hallmark symptoms overlap between CRS with and CRS without, they're generally two separate diseases with different pathophysiologies. And when I just talked about, you know, blocking certain cytokines, type 1 inflammation does not involve those. Type 1 inflammation is more neutrophilic driven and has different treatment options, different modalities. Great. So now that we have a better understanding of this disease, what symptoms would a new patient complain of that would lead you to consider CRS as the diagnosis? And are any of these clinical symptoms specific to CRS with polyps? Well, there's four main symptoms for CRS. There's nasal congestion or obstruction, and patients will report different versions. I have different thoughts of what it means to be obstructed versus congestion, but basically they're not breathing as well through their nose. The second one would be pain or pressure, and that could be on the face and the head. There are certain sinuses that refer pain to different places, but generally just as an overall pain or pressure is a, is a hallmark symptom. The third one would be abnormal drainage from the nose, and that could be anterior nasal drainage or posterior. It could be differences in consistency, thicker. It could be purulent, different colors. And the fourth symptom of CRS is olfactory dysfunction, and that could be either hyposmia or anosmia. And when looking at comparing CRS with polyps and CRS without polyps, those patients that have polyps typically have more olfactory dysfunction, and that comes from either just blockage of airflow getting up to the olfactory region by having large polyps in the way such that air can't get in and get all the way up to that cribriform plate. And then there's also dysfunction that happens when there's inflammation, underlying inflammation in the ethmoid and surrounding tissues that the olfactory mucosa becomes deranged and not functioning appropriately. And that typically happens after a longer period of time. But patients that have CRS with polyps more commonly have olfactory dysfunction than without polyps. 
The other of those four symptoms that's a little different is that patients that have polyps generally have less pain and pressure when comparing to patients who have CRS without polyps. Those that have infection or purulent inflammation, type 1 inflammation, generally have more pain and pressure than those that have type 2 inflammation or polyps. And are there any clinical symptoms or diseases you would ask about while taking the HPI, um, particularly thinking of comorbid symptoms or predisposing risk factors? Yeah, absolutely. Patients who have type 2 inflammation may have also other diseases of type 2 inflammation, and they're more commonly having asthma. Asthma is also one of those type 2 inflammation diseases. Uh, You mentioned that there was a previous podcast on AERD, which is another subtype of chronic rhinosinusitis with polyps. It's special because it has that aspirin sensitivity and asthma also present. It's typically a more severe form of CRS with polyps. I also often take a really good allergy history. That's another example of type 2 inflammation. And a lot of the symptoms um, of CRS do overlap with allergic rhinitis in terms of abnormal nasal drainage, congestion, smell dysfunction, Uh, pain or pressure on the face. And so taking a good allergy history, I think is important. Taking a good history is also important because there are other medical disorders which present with sinonasal inflammation. There are genetic or congenital forms of chronic rhinosinusitis, such as cystic fibrosis or or primary ciliary dyskinesia. Generally, these are disorders that patients are born with. However, there are, are forms where there's less severe symptoms or incomplete penetrance or a single copy of a gene and patients can get diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as an adult. There are also other medical disorders, autoimmune disorders, such as sarcoidosis or vasculitis, GPA, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, or the eosinophilic form of that, which have sinonasal inflammation as part of their presentation. And it's important to take a good medical history about other, uh, other systems that may be involved, such as the lungs and the kidneys. And then taking a a good uh, social history, looking for environmental exposures, not just allergens, but also things in the environment that may make sinusitis worse, such as tobacco smoke, which is known to impair mucociliary clearance. And so uh, generally when patients come in and make these diagnoses, you want to be a good medical doctor and take a thorough medical history. So it's interesting that you mention asthma and allergies, and I'm going to get a little personal here for a minute. I actually have CRS as well as asthma and allergies, but I've never experienced any polyps. Um, I was operated on a few years ago, uh, still still no polyps. Is that common? Do you see that frequently? Would I have CRS with nasal polyps without actually having them? Right. That's a great point. And so you have to ask yourself, do you think that you have type 1 inflammation or type 2 inflammation? Or now there's also something called type 3 inflammation. And there's mixed types of inflammation. And so if you have the symptoms early, early on in the disease process, and it's type 2 inflammation, polyps don't develop overnight. They take some time. And if you have good medical therapies and say you're seeing someone being treated for allergic rhinitis and asthma, and sinusitis is in its early phases of the disease process, you may never see a polyp. And so if I had to guess, not having been your physician, I would say, Drew, that you have type 2 inflammation. You have chronic rhinositis, you have allergic rhinitis, you have asthma. It makes sense that you are suffering from type 2 inflammation. 
type 1 inflammation, infectious sinusitis, or autoimmune is generally not associated with those disorders. And so if you went back and looked at the pathology from your surgery, my guess is that they would see eosinophils in the tissue, and that if you hadn't had appropriate medical therapies and hadn't had good sinus surgery, that perhaps you may be developing a polyp after years of suffering. And so possibly you would have developed a polyp. So the future of, of CRS, I think, is not going to be talking about with polyps or without polyps, but being more specific and saying type 1 inflammation, type 2, type 3, or, or describing the pathophysiology, eosinophilic CRS, non-eosinophilic, neutrophilic CRS, or mixed types, because I do see that as well. Some patients have polyps, but they also have purulent drainage at the same time. And so we're early on in endotyping and subtyping. And really the future is going to be molecular. How do we have biomarkers to identify what is the appropriate type of disorder that you're suffering from? And it'll help us to determine prognosis. What's the best treatment for which patient? This is back to personalized medicine. Some patients do very well with medical therapy. Some people do very well with surgery. And some people do very well with biologics. And so having that prognostic information, as well as that target for medical therapy for biologics, if needed, is extremely important. So that's really the future that you're, you're, you're bringing up here. What kind of inflammation is present and how do we best treat it? So after you've taken the history and you're moving on to the physical exam, what are you looking for? Well, a good physical exam of the head and neck is appropriate for all patients. But focusing on the nasal exam, I always start with a nasal exam just by looking at anterior rhinoscopy, getting a good view with a headlight and a nasal speculum at the anterior nasal cavity, assessing the septum, accepting the valves, accepting the turbinates. And I often see that as a pitfall when people think, oh, you have CRS, let's go straight to an endoscope and look at what's inside. But you have to keep in mind that the front of the nose is also extremely important in terms of the anatomy and the structure of the nasal cavity for appropriate airflow and breathing. And so that's the first part of the physical exam. The next is nasal endoscopy. And all patients who I'm suspecting have CRS or CRS or polyps present get a nasal endoscopy. And so the main things you're looking for is just the, the anatomy, seeing if there's appropriate anatomy in terms of the turbinate size, location, and the septum to make sure there's not a spur or, or deviation of the septum that's obstructing either the nasal cavity or one of the sinus passages. And then it's evaluating those sinus passages. The sinus is drained through two main pathways, either the middle meatus or the sphenoethmoid recess. And you want to do a good endoscopy where you get up into those areas and you're looking for purulent drainage or the presence of edema and polyps. In addition to that physical exam, will you routinely order any imaging or lab tests? You know, imaging of patients with CRS with polyps is often done uh, in anticipation of sinus surgery, planning for surgery. It can sometimes be done also if you're looking for other uh, special things. For example, patients that have unilateral polyps is a little unusual. CRS with polyps is generally a bilateral disease, but when you have a unilateral disease, you start to wonder, do I have the right diagnosis? And other possibilities include tumors, such as inverted papilloma, a benign tumor of the sinonasal cavities that looks like a polyp and gets treated very differently. There are other tumors that can be present, both benign and malignant. And so if you have a unilateral disease, you for sure want to do a little bit more with imaging. There are other uh, subtypes of CRS, 
For example, there's one called allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, which also can be unilateral and uh, is also treated a little bit differently. Those patients uh, need to have surgery to clear out the polyps and, and the fungal material. And so if you're suspecting a unilateral or atypical presentation, you need a CT scan to help with your diagnosis of the correct subtype or endotype of disease. Having said that, the majority of people who come in who are medically treated, who are diagnosed, a CT scan is not essential for making this diagnosis. For CRS with polyps, the diagnosis is made by having generally two of the four hallmark symptoms of CRS with polyps, and then confirming uh, that with an endoscopy. Now, if an endoscopy were negative or if you had a CT, a CT scan is another way you could confirm the diagnosis of CRS. Uh, but generally, when you make the diagnosis and you see polyps present, you try medical therapies. And then once medical therapies have been exhausted and there's continued symptoms, if you're thinking of doing sinus surgery, then you need a CT scan to help you plan for your sinus surgery. Now that we've discussed the workup, to give Dr. Platt's larynx a break, I'll rehash the requirements for an official diagnosis of CRS as stated by the American Academy of Otolaryngology's guidelines. So 12 weeks or longer of two or more of the following signs and symptoms, mucopurulent drainage, nasal obstruction or congestion, facial pain, pressure or fullness, decreased sense of smell, as well as objective inflammation characterized by at least one of the following, purulent mucus or edema in the middle meatus or anterior ethmoid region, polyps in the nasal cavity or the middle meatus, radiographic imaging showing inflammation of the paranasal sinuses. Moving forward, uh, looking at this disease from a mental health perspective, what burdens do these patients experience? Chronic rhinosinusitis has a huge burden on individuals. There's an economic burden in terms of the costs of healthcare and substantial loss of productivity and work. And there's also the, the burden of the symptoms and the loss in quality of life, comparing it to other chronic diseases, it's on par or even worse than diseases such as coronary artery disease and COPD and end-stage renal diseases, things that we think about as incapacitating uh, diseases. Uh, CRS is up there with those diseases. So I liken it to describing everyone here has had a bad cold and you feel how, think about how miserable you feel when you have a cold. You don't feel like working or going to school you don't sleep well, you don't feel well, you don't feel like doing much, you don't enjoy food. Well, patients that have CRS essentially have that cold. It just doesn't go away. They deal with those same symptoms. They deal with the pressure, the congestion, the loss of sense of smell, and they're also tired because they have all these inflammatory mediators and it does affect their sleep. And so absolutely, there's a huge burden on patients from many different standpoints. These patients really suffer for a long time and are really appreciative when you can offer them treatment. It certainly can be a frustrating disease and I think that's a perfect segue into treatment options. So after diagnosing your patient with CRS, with nasal polyps, and you're considering treatment options, I would say a general principle of surgery is to start with medical management when possible before jumping to surgical management is that the case here as well? And what would first-line medical management consist of? Absolutely. Appropriate medical therapies are always considered before you do surgery. And for most diseases, there's a whole wide range of appropriate medical therapies. 
Keep in mind that not all diseases have appropriate medical therapies, in which case surgery can be first line and things like a tumor, inverted papilloma, which I already mentioned. But CRS with polyps, what's appropriate medical therapy? High volume nasal saline irrigations twice daily. Intranasal corticosteroid sprays also are helpful. We know that corticosteroids help polyps and depending on the polyp burden, sometimes if it's too high, patients will need short courses of oral systemic corticosteroids, weighing the risks and benefits of doing that. And every physician has their limit for how often and how much they will do. But for sure, oral, oral corticosteroids can help in short bursts. And then there's the question of antibiotics. You know, in the old days, sinusitis was an infect, thought of as an infectious disease. And you know, everyone, of course, gets trials of antibiotics. But there's really not good data for short courses of oral antibiotics for CRS with polyps. And there is some data for longer courses of uh, macrolide antibiotics and specifically only macrolide antibiotics for CRS with polyps. But there's not generally that strong of data. And so uh, it's an option whether you do that even macrolide long courses. And so generally for my patients that I'm treating, antibiotics are not uh, part of the treatment for CRS with polyps. It's generally corticosteroids topically, occasionally short bursts systemically, nasal saline, irrigations. So now that we've talked about medical management, let's move on and talk more about surgical management, specifically endoscopic sinus surgery. What are the indications and goals of sinus surgery? And then you don't usually use balloon dilation in patients with polyps. Is that correct? Well, that is correct. You know, balloon dilation has specific indications, but not for polyps. It doesn't do anything for polyps. And so I would say that's a contraindication for using a balloon. The indication for surgery is failure of appropriate medical therapies, and it's a quality of life decision for patients. Patients have to be informed of the, the benefits from surgery, the risks, the possible complications, side effects, and then make an informed decision. And the majority of patients are very happy to undergo endoscopic sinus surgery because they have significant symptoms. They've tried a number of medical therapies that haven't provided significant enough relief. And the safety profile is excellent. And so the vast majority of patients who have CRS with polyps at some point do decide to undergo endoscopic sinus surgery when symptoms are too severe. So it is a quality of life decision that is made uh, in an informed basis for each individual patient. Goals of surgery are generally to remove as much polyp tissue as safely can be removed. In many patients, that is a complete removal of the polyp tissue, realizing that sometimes the polyps are attached to vital structures, for example, the skull base or one of the ethmoid arteries, and surgeons can make decisions to leave behind some tissue if it's thought to be too much risk. And then another goal of surgery is providing uh, patency to all of the sinus ostea. There are four sinuses on each side, and generally, patients with have, who have polyps have more advanced disease, and we try to open as many sinuses as we can safely endoscopically. So those are the two goals. And you know, patients who have who undergo sinus surgery, it's generally not a curative procedure. There are rare cases where I take out polyps and they don't come back, and everything's wonderful. But the vast majority of patients, this is a chronic medical disorder. As we talked about, it's a derangement of the immune system type 2 inflammation. And just by doing surgery, you don't change the immune system. So one of the benefits of sinus surgery is providing these patent sinuses that aren't blocked by polyps, as well as larger openings to the sinus cavities that can then have better medical topical therapy 
in the form of saline irrigations or topical corticosteroids, which I mentioned, which do come in several different varieties. You can have the traditional just spray in topical steroids. You can also do off-label saline irrigations with steroids mixed into the saline. And then there's even a newer device that's FDA approved for CRS with polyps, where there's a nasal applicator as well as an oral applicator that helps you blow in, deliver the steroids a little higher and further into the sinuses. So one great thing about surgery is just the creation of widely patent sinuses that are amenable to topical therapies. Another benefit is the ability to monitor. And so when you're talking about disease that has overlap with other disorders, with headaches and facial pain disorders, with allergic rhinitis, having the ability to look into the sinuses deeply with an endoscope in clinic and make appropriate diagnoses is often helpful. Also for patients that have things like purulent drainage or an infectious component, being able to do culture and clean out and wash out the sinuses in clinic is also an advantage. And so I'd say that generally these patients do very well with sinus surgery and get benefits besides just the initial surgery. It's benefits for future treatment and monitoring of the disease. Do you see polyps return in the years following sinus surgery? And how do you manage that? Generally, we expect return of the polyps, or at least the cyanonasal inflammation. Patients are generally informed that they're going to have continued symptoms and continued need for medical therapies. And so we try to do everything we can to prevent polyps from recurring. And as they do happen to recur, we often have to tailor our medical therapies. And so initially, you could just start with nasal saline irrigations, topical steroid sprays. And as needed, you could start increasing the topical delivery of steroids. There's even a steroid stent that can be placed into the sinuses. I mentioned that there's steroid irrigations, there's blown in steroids, and sometimes you have to use systemic steroids as well. But generally, that's the mainstay of treatment to try to control uh, polyp regrowth after surgery. Every patient is different. Their degree of inflammation is different, and it depends on how they're doing, monitoring with endoscopy to figure out what is the appropriate post-operative medical management therapy regimen for each patient. Now, there are those patients that, despite doing all that, continue to make polyps that obstruct their nasal cavities and provide symptoms. And that's where the, where biologics come in. You know, two years ago, we didn't have biologics, and it's been something that's really changed uh, care for our most severe patients. That's a perfect segue into my next question. Uh, we've discussed medical management. We've discussed surgical management. Now, can you address more specifically the biologic agents and when you would consider therapy with biologics? Absolutely. There's now three biologic agents that are approved for CRS with polyps. That's dupilumab, omalizumab, and mepolizumab. And they each address a different signaling component of the allergic pathway. Uh, Dupilumab was the first one that was FDA approved. And it is an an antibody that uh, blocks IL-4 and IL-13. Omalizumab blocks IgE, and mepolizumab is anti-IL-5. And so these are agents that are great for those patients that are most severe. They also have indications for uh, asthma. And so if you have a patient that also has uncontrolled asthma, it's great. Dupilumab also has an indication of atopic dermatitis. Omalizumab has an indication for chronic idiopathic urticaria. And so if you have a patient that has more than one of the indications, it makes sense that they could go on it. But for just a straight CRS with polyp standpoint, it's really our most severe patients 
who benefit from these therapies. And so we do appropriate medical therapies, we do appropriate surgery, we do post-op medical therapies, and if the patients need be, they go on biologic agents thereafter. It's still an area of controversy as there's such new therapies. We don't have studies that show head-to-head studies. There are definitely other issues that go into it, such as you know patient-centered decision-making. These seem to be very safe therapies. They've been around for some time for asthma, but sometimes there are long-term consequences of biologics that weren't known 20 or 25 years down the line. And so there's some unknown if you're going to be on it for a long period of time. We know that if you come off of it, the symptoms generally come back. The polyps come back to where they were beforehand. There are high costs for these therapies, something somewhere around thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. And so that's significant. And obtaining approval from an insurance company can be challenging. You need to demonstrate the need for it. It's not for every patient who has a polyp. And so it's early on in the use. And I think that we're going to have a lot more information as uh, studies come out looking at the different pros and cons and comparisons and and where it actually fits in in the treatment regimen uh, is going to change in the upcoming years. But it's really wonderful that we have these therapies for their most severe patients where we previously did not have good therapies. So with these multiple options, each covering various aspects of the inflammation and polypoid cascade, how do you choose which biologic agent to use? That's a great question. And it seems like they all work and they don't work for all patients. And so we're still learning more about endotypes and subtypes. And so trying to figure out which is the one for the right patient is gonna be future research. You know, if a patient does have a second indication for that biologic, then that makes it a little bit easier. I imagine that there's probably gonna be some insurance companies that are gonna limit one versus the other based on whatever type of purchasing arrangements they have for those companies. And so it's a clinical decision made by the physician at this point and you know, there was one that came out first that always has uh, a little bit of an advantage and that it's been around a little longer and it's been demonstrated to work very well. Um, so there's multiple options out there and there's multiple possibilities of how you choose the right one. So the Academy meeting last fall featured a spirited debate discussing whether the rise of biologics will result in the end of sinus surgery as we know it. What's your take? Can you shed some light on this hot topic? Sure. I think there's going to be a lot of debate. And it's interesting to see people's biases. You know, the surgeons, of course, want more surgery and the medical allergists think this is great that you don't have to do surgery. And so my take is, is that it's a wonderful treatment. It's wonderful because, like I said, we have a treatment for the most severe patients who do, some patients do exceptionally well on it. And we previously did not have a treatment. I think that most people agree that, you know, you have to appro- approach any disease with a, a stepwise treatment algorithm. Appropriate medical therapies are done before surgery. Surgery has an absolutely wonderful track record in improving symptoms. And there are many patients who have relief and will never ever consider a biologic because of the great benefits from surgery. Costs are definitely real and have to be considered. And the cost analysis have shown that uh, for just any patient off the street, surgery is a much less uh, expensive option than biologic therapy, but it does get complicated when looking at many different factors. And so I think that we all have our biases. There's lots of uh, different viewpoints of this. By the end of the day, surgery has a very big role in the treatment of CRS with polyps and that biologics has a very important role and that the great thing is they both help patients in many different ways. And at the end of the day, that's a very personalized decision. You'll see patients who say, I'm never having surgery. And you also see patients who say, I'm never going to take a biologic. 
And so it will all work itself out in the long run. Uh, but it's great to have these all these options for patients. They, you know, patients really are suffering and we need all the treatment options we can get. Well, Dr. Platt, this has been a great discussion about chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Before I move on to the summary, is there anything else you would like to add about this topic? Uh, no, Drew, I think this was great. It was a great discussion. You brought up some really great points and uh, I enjoyed it. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Platt. I'll now move on to a brief summary of today's topic. Approximately 30% of patients with CRS have a subtype with nasal polyps. While more research is needed to understand the full pathophysiology of CRS with nasal polyps, it is an inflammatory process mediated by a TH2 and frequently features high levels of eosinophils, cytokines IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, and histamine. Symptoms may include worsening nasal obstruction, sinus fullness or pressure, nasal drainage, and a decreased sense of smell. Diagnosis is based on these clinical symptoms, nasal endoscopy findings, and CT scan results. Medical management features sinus saline and or steroid rinses, topical steroid sprays, or systemic steroids. Endoscopic sinus surgeries often require to remove polyps and completely open all sinuses to allow better delivery of topical steroid medication. In select situations, biologic therapy may be considered if polyps recur after previous complete endoscopic sinus surgery or multiple previous surgeries. Let's move on to the question and answer portion of this episode. I'll ask a question, then pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it before I provide the answer. What type of T-cells mediate the inflammatory process that results in nasal polyps? TH2. What is the mechanism of action of the biologic agent dupilumab? A monoclonal antibody against the IL-4 receptor, which inhibits signaling of IL-4 and IL-13. The trade name of dupilumab is dupixent. What recurrence rates are seen in pulp regrowth following surgery? up to 40%. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to sharing more with you soon.